I turned on and off. There you go. All right. I was on, but now I'm on again. That's great. All right. Thanks. <clears throat> so we come now to the scripture. Let me ask you, please, um, to pray with me. Um, Father and our God, uh, you have said to us in your word that your word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. And so we trust you in that. And so we come to it and we trust that in hearing this word that we will know how we are to know what we are to believe and to know how we are to live and so I pray that this word to us will be a means of grace to make wise the simple and to empower the weak that we may walk before you in such a way that will bring you glory. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to Ephesians in chapter 6. I want to read verses 10 through 20. Ephesians chapter 6, please. This is the word of the Lord. Verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. um, And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, And having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit and with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me. That words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And then together we say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now, Paul begins this section uh, with the word finally. Now, we mentioned last week that it doesn't mean that he's near the end. He is near the end, but that's not why he said finally. He said finally because he wants them to realize that given all that he said, they need to know this. They need to know everything else, but they need to know this. He wouldn't be finished until, unless he said what he's about to say. So we need to understand all that he said in light of this. And so what has he said? Just very quickly, remember he said that as believers in Jesus, as those who are in Christ, united to him, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. He says that's true about those who believe. That's true about those who are united to Christ. That's true for those who are in him. And what are those spiritual blessings? Well, he lists them, at least some of them, and he says, now, you've been chosen um, before the foundations of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. And you go, that's a great blessing because I know inherently I'm not holy and blameless. So he must have clothed me with 
a holiness and a blamelessness so that I can be in his presence. And he says, yes, in Christ, who is the holy and blameless one, you're holy and blameless in him. Not only that, in love, he's adopted you. That is, that you're really part of his family. He really is your heavenly father. You really can pray and he really will hear you. He really is at work in the world and in your life in such a way to discipline, that is to train you as a perfect father would train you. So you can trust that he's at work growing you up. He's at trust that he's at work doing that. Um, you've been redeemed. That is, he's bought you. He's paid a price, the most precious price, the blood of his son. He's paid a price in order to, to free you from sin's penalty. And it's enslaving power. It's forgiven you. Your sins are forgiven. That you have an inheritance that, as the Apostle Peter says, can neither spoil or fade or rust. Nothing can take it. It's secure. Your eternal life. And he's sealed you. That is, he's given you his Holy Spirit. And he's given you his spirit as a guarantee that everything that he's promised will come to fruition. He said, here, here's a deposit, my spirit within you. Now live in that assurance, you see. And not only that, the spiritual blessing is uh, he's brought peace. And he's brought peace between us and God. There was an hostility that God had towards us because of our sin. He being holy, we being rebellious. There was judgment upon us. Uh, but, but, but through Christ. And the cross, he's brought peace. And how's he done that? Well, the Lord Jesus came and he lived for us righteously so that his righteousness could be ours. And he took the penalty for our sin that was to be really justly upon us. And he took the penalty for our sin and, and, and died so that all who trust in him, thus are united to him, can receive Forgiveness of sins. And God could be just, that is, dealt with our sin, and the justifier, that is, declare righteous, all who have faith in Jesus. So we have peace with God. But not only that, he's joined us with God and with other believers. So there's peace. We're all of the same family, all of the same kingdom, all of the same temple being built together, you see. So he's reconciled us to God and each other peace with God and peace with each other peace with each other uh, objectively because he simply joined us uh, to one another and we have one father but also subjectively because we realize uh, that we're all the same we're all sinners saved by grace and so none of us can pridefully hold themselves over the other even if we hurt each other misunderstand each other Still, we forgive because we accept one another as we've been accepted. We forgive as we've been forgiven, thus reconciled together. So he said, now I want you to live that out. He says, you need to live that out. And so, as he puts it in chapter 4, verse 1, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so he says, I've, I've grouped you together in church, in this body, and I've grouped you together and joined you together here, and you're to uh, 
love one another in such a way that you speak the truth to one another and build one another up in the character of God in love. Don't walk as you used to walk, but now walk as one who's learned Christ. What does it mean to learn Christ? Well, it means that you now know that he's creating you in, in the likeness of God. You're this new creation. Something has really happened. And, and now he's creating you in the likeness of God uh, to live out life in true righteousness and holiness. And there he goes. And then in chapter 4, and tells us what that means, how we're to live. He sums it up with this expression in chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God. As beloved children, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself us for us, uh, gave himself up, up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. He says you're to, to live as children of the light because now you are light in the Lord, no longer in the sphere of darkness, but now in light, you see. And, and then he says you're to walk wisely, filled with the Holy Spirit. And when you're filled with the Spirit, what that means is that you'll, you'll worship together. You'll give thanks to God and you'll speak to each other all that is glorious about God. And you'll do that as you gather together to worship. And in humility, you'll submit to each other to serve one another. And he says, let me give you some examples of what that looks like in marriage, in your family with your children, and in, in your work life. These, these very these key principle um, areas of life instituted by God for human beings at creation and marriage and family and, and our work. And he says, here's how, how, that will, how that will live out. And you get to the end of it and you go, this is great. What could, what could be the problem? Oh, oh, perhaps my sinful nature coming to rise at times and, and maybe the influence of the world and all that. But, but we can make a go of this. And, and he says, I got to tell you one more thing. There's a spiritual enemy. And there's a spiritual battle that's going on that you can't see. Right? And so you need to be prepared for that. And here's what you need to do in the midst of that. You need to stand. That is, don't give up any ground. That is, that all these spiritual blessings that are yours, that don't give them up, still live in them. The way that you're called to live as a follower of Jesus, don't give that up. Don't be confused. Don't think that isn't true. Don't think you aren't to live that particular way because you really are. Don't give that up. Keep walking. Keep living this. It's a spiritual battle. We see it. He says we don't wrestle or struggle in some other versions. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. See, it's a spiritual thing. Now we knew we, we wrestle against flesh and blood. We have other people. We, we get that. But he says behind all of that, there's a spiritual battle. And he, he names the leader of this um, spiritual um, enemy, if you will, um, the devil. We know him. And he, he says that uh, he's organized. There's authorities, uh, rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in, in, in heavenly places. And, and so we know this one, this devil, um, this liar, as he's called, Satan, this accuser, this deceiver. He's referred in the scriptures, the prince of the power of the air, the God of this age, um, the prince of demons. We get it. And Jesus, or Paul is telling us that we have this, this enemy. Now, 
Paul isn't saying that there are two gods, right? You know that. He isn't saying there's two gods. There's only one God, the creator of all that is, even the creator of this evil one. We know this evil one fell from his position as angel, took others with him uh, to rebel against the people of God and to rebel against God particularly and then ultimately the people of God to come against them. And we know that God has ordained to permit this evil one to be able to harass. Uh, Peter refers to him as this one who's like a roaring lion, lion seeking to devour. So that's, that's, that's his sense here. In the Revelation of John, we read Revelation chapter 12, uh, that, that, that he's been cast out of heaven, if you will, and, and now he's seeking the followers of Christ, the ones who obey him. He's after them, you see. But we know he isn't sovereign. We know that because we see him even in the Old Testament, in the life of Job, that God limits what Satan can do. And, and we also realize that Satan ultimately works for the glory of God and his ends. We saw that in the life of Job. Can't you imagine how with the angst that it created in Satan when, when he could do all these horrible things to Job and still at the end, Job worships God? You can just hear Satan going, rats, I thought I had him. Or in the life of Paul, when, when he's uh, allowed to give um, Paul what he calls a thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan to harass him, and Paul ends up being empowered by God at the end of all that. And can't you see Satan going, rats, I thought I had him. And then particularly in the life of Jesus. Where Satan enters Judas and we see the whole scene ultimately of the crucifixion of Jesus. And yet that was the moment of the defeat of this evil one. Can't you just imagine him saying, I thought I had him. But ultimately you see Satan in every respect, particularly in the lives of believers, works to bring about blessing for us. That we'll see God's glory. So we need not fear him in that sense. But we need to realize that this exists. And we need to be wise as we, as we live out our lives. So the apostle says, here's what you need to know. First, you need to be strong in the Lord and strength of his might. In other words, you can't do this alone. Don't just think that, that, that you can just walk out there and, 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 and you'll be able to do all of this. Remember, there's an enemy. He's strong. And he's stronger than you. And so you always have to live church, you always have to live utterly dependent upon the strength that God supplies. Never on your own strength, only on the strength that God supplies. So he says, be strong, be strengthened, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might so that you can stand, so that you won't give up any ground, so that you'll live in the way that you're to live. And then he says, here's, here's, here's how you're strengthened. Verse 13 Well, verse 11, he says, put on the whole armor of God. And then verse 13, he gets more particular. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Well, what's that evil day? Well, scholars differ on how they understand this sense. Is it the day that's to come in the the most evilest of times, right before the second, second coming of our Lord Jesus, perhaps? But... That may or may not have any application 
uh, to any one generation if that's the only thing it refers to. So others would say the evil day is, is this present evil age that the apostle talks about, the age in which we live. Yes, of course, this is an evil day, the age in which we live, the, 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 this present darkness. We live in that day. And so he says you'll be able to stand even in the midst of that and even in the midst when, if it so happens, you are the recipient of a particular onslaught of this one who is evil. With his armor, you'll be able to stand. So be strengthened. Be strengthened in the Lord. So just a couple of general observations. And then if, if I'm able, I hope to get through at least verse 15. Just some general observations about this armor. It's God's armor. Now, as we mentioned last Sunday, that the apostle's likely to be well aware if he's not even seeing, as he writes this, a Roman soldier dressed in such armor. And so he kind of pins different pieces on this Roman soldier. But, but, but it's God's armor that is in his mind, in the armor of Christ. For instance, in Isaiah in chapter 11, we have a passage that speaks of the Messiah who is to come And here's how he's described. Verse 4 says, But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So at least we have this armor. It's not quite in the same place that it will be in a minute uh, on the Messiah. But, but you get this sense of this metaphor to be able to use this warrior because the Messiah comes. The Messiah comes uh, to defeat, if you will, uh, the evil one uh, on our behalf. To destroy, as the scripture says, the works of the devil. Then in Isaiah chapter 59, speaking again of this one who is to come. He said, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. And so, again, just this same kind of idea that, that, that God is pictured as a warrior, the Messiah is pictured as a warrior who come and defeat, if you will, the evil one to destroy the works of the devil. And then one that we're very familiar with that we'll come back to, I trust, uh, at the end this morning uh, from Isaiah 52, uh, verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. This, this, uh, these shoes that we have read about this morning, that is the gospel of peace and the readiness to declare it. So we see this is the armor of God that he gives to us and that we are to put it on that continues over and over. Our dear friend, Jerry Bridges, I can still hear hear him saying this to me. I hear a number of things him saying to me from time to time. When I get to heaven and I hear the voice of God, I I wonder if it's not going to sound like Jerry's. But, uh, But he would say, you know, Bill, we have to put it on. We have to put it on. You have to be engaged. You have to be aware. You have to be conscious. We need to do deliberately something. It's God's. It's his gift to us. But we have to, we're told to put it on. And then he would smile because he didn't have the greatest sense of humor. 
And he would say, don't leave home without it. (laughs) I think that's the only joke he ever told. Or maybe the only one I ever got. But that's the sense of it, right? We We have to put it on. And there's a relationship between this armor where it is on our bodies and, and its function, if you will. We, we really get the sense of this belt of truth to make us ready to prepare us, to free us up. We'll talk about that in a minute. But, but the breastplate of righteousness over our hearts, you go, oh, there's probably a relation. The helmet of salvation on our heads. And not only that, there's, these things aren't mutually exclusive. They sort of bleed over into each other. When we talk about the belt of truth, of course, what's that truth? Well, it certainly is related to knowing the truth of this righteousness that is ours in Christ, you see. And what is the helmet of salvation? What is our salvation? Well, we know what that is. It, it's the truth concerning Jesus, and it's the truth of Jesus and in Jesus, and it's this righteousness that we've received, uh, this justification through him. Uh, and we have this belt of truth and the sword of the Spirit and the, the readiness that we have because of the shoes that we wear, this gospel of peace. So they're all related here, but but the apostle wants to see something distinct, if you will, uh, one by one. And then finally this, and this might be the most curious thing of all, at least for some, is that as we read in the epistles in the New Testament, we don't have any instructions at all in how we're to cast out Satan. Now, we see the encounters of Jesus with the evil one and what he does. We see uh, in the Gospels and we see in the book of Acts. But, 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 but here you would think, I would think, that if he's going to address the evil one, he's going to say, this is how you name those demons and cast them out. I'm not going to talk about why he doesn't do that because he doesn't tell us why he doesn't do that. I'm just saying he doesn't do that. So all I can say is what he said, which is, here's how you deal with the evil one. You put on this armor so you can be strengthened, so that you can stand in the evil day, so you can stand in the days in which we live, so you can stand in a day when evil is directed at you in a palatable way, uh, or if we live to that day when the Lord returns. So, so what's he say? Well, hopefully this morning I'll take up at least these three verses, 14, or yeah, uh, two verses, 14 and 15, uh, primarily. Um, he says, first of all, we're to stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Now, I'm sure you know that this belt of this belt that a Roman soldier was, would wear, some discussion about what it was exactly. It's unlikely to be just sort of a belt. It's more likely to be an apron that's going to kind of flow down a bit and cover him up. But, but the function of it primarily was so that the rest of his clothing wouldn't get in his way. So he could tuck in or keep tight to himself uh, the robes that he would perhaps have on. And so when he put on this belt, there's a sense in which he was saying, I'm ready. I'm ready to go. Nothing now can impede me. I'm getting ready for this fight. Um, I'm prepared. It's rather like uh, Peter discusses in uh, first Peter and uh, in chapter one, he uses a similar expression um, in verse 13. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action. That expression preparing is a similar expression that we have here. It's gird up. Gird up your minds. Gather them up 
so that you won't be impeded as you go. No, no surprise that he would begin with truth um, that, that undergirds, if you will, or pulls everything together, this truth. And it's the truth that we have in Christ and the truth that we have in Scripture, right? And the truth that we have in the gospel. He says, you need, to, you need to have this truth. You need to put it on, which means you need to know it. You need to believe it. It needs, means, needs to be part of who you are. Not something external, but something internal. Something that is really, really true of you. And Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. When he said he was the truth, what he meant by that was that you can rely upon who I am. You can rely and trust everything I say. You can rely, you can trust everything I do. I'm truth. I'm reliable. I'm trustworthy. There's no falsehood about me at all. And so when he comes and he says, I'm going to give my life as a ransom for many, he, he means that. And when he gives his life, it is a ransom for many. And what does he mean by that? I'm going to give my life because that's what's necessary for your salvation. You can't save yourself. Trust me in that. If you could save yourself, I wouldn't be here. But the fact that I'm here means you can't save yourself. And so I've come to save you. I've come to bring this reconciliation. Trust me. And, I, and here's what I'm going to do. And I give my life for, as a ransom for many. So I'm going to pay a price so that you can be freed. So you can be freed from the penalty of your sin. You can be freed from the power of your sin. And, and so that you can come and believe. So I'm going, to, I'm going to do that. You can trust me. I'm reliable. I'm truth. And so Paul's saying you've got to gird yourself with that. You've got to, you've got to put that on. You've got to really know that. But you can't save yourself. But the Christ can. And he has done all that's necessary. Now he bids you come to say, believe, trust me. I'm trustworthy. I'm reliable. I really am. And it's a truth that we find in, in Scripture. Um, we need to uh, know this word. We need to put it on so that we can believe, so we can walk with him. You, you know this passage I'm about to read to you out of Deuteronomy in chapter 8. I first memorized this verse, not in the Bible, or from the Bible, but I first memorized it by a napkin holder uh, that was sold prevalently probably in the late 1950s that had this verse on it for some reason, I don't know. But I memorized it there. I was surprised when I found it in the Bible later on. But I go, well, that's, that's on the napkin holder. Uh, I suppose because it deals with food in some way, uh, the napkin holder at least But it said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We live on this, you see. We live on this, not by the bread that we eat, though that keeps us alive physically. But spiritually, eternally, what we live on is the word of God. Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's why at the end of Deuteronomy, um, uh, Moses would summer up this uh, law that he gives to them that, that summarizes everything that he had uh, taught them, everything God had revealed. In verse 47 in Deuteronomy uh, 32, it says, For it is no empty word for you, that is the law that he's given to you, but it's your very life. Uh, 
a version I memorized years ago is, this is no idle word for you. This is your life. You'll die without this. And so that's what the apostle is saying to us. We'll die without this. We need this. We need this word. Uh, last Sunday, I think it was, we, we used Psalm 19 as our call to worship. Um, the latter part of it, at least, speaks to us of, of, of the word of God. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. You see, if you need your soul revived, go to this word, it will tell you how your soul is revived. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. You want to be wise? And you must know the things of God. And if you're going to know the things of God, you must know this word. So it makes wise said, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and, the right, and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there's great reward, you see. That's, that's the power of this word. And so Paul's saying, you've got you to know this. You've got to put this on. You've got to have this. If not, you'll die. The evil won't come and, and tell you lies. And unless you know the truth, then you'll fall. So don't, don't do that. 30 years ago, when we first came, began to talk, what are we going to do? What are we going to be as a church? And one of the things that kept coming up over and over again is we want to establish, plant, establish the word of God in this place. The belt of truth. Psalm 119. Right? Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. We need to know the word of God so we, we don't say when the evil one comes, you see, he lies to us and, 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 and tells us, oh, that isn't really what God said. You see, that's the, that's the MO of the evil one. You remember back in Genesis chapter 3, that's how he started out with Eve. Oh, God, did God really say this? And she corrected him, but then she added to what God had said. And then he became very blunt and he said, if you eat this tree, you won't die. You won't die. I, that's what God said you would, but you won't die. Actually, you'll be like him knowing good and evil, and, 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 and that was a lie, you see. Because they were never meant, human beings never meant to be the ones to know good and evil in the sense that we define what is good and what is evil. That's the prerogative of God. And he says, if you do this, if you go out on your own, if you strike out on your own and you make your own rules, then you'll be like God. And you go, well, no, not really. I'll be like you, Satan, a rebellious one against God. And, and they, he lied, you see, and that's, what he, and that's what he continues. He's the father of lies, Jesus Tells us we need to know the truth. So when he lies, we'll know that he's lying to us. And so when he comes against us and says, you're not really holy and blameless in the sight of God, we can say, but, but the scripture says that's a spiritual blessing for all those in Christ. I'm in Christ, therefore, he says, well, you're not, you don't really belong to him. Yes, I do. I've been adopted into his family. That's what the scripture says. You're not really forgiven. Yes, I am, because the scripture says I really am forgiven, you see. There's no inheritance. Yes, there is an inheritance for me. And it's kept for me. And I know that because the scripture says that that's the truth. There's no guarantee. Yes, there is a guarantee. The blood of Christ, the presence of his spirit. So yes, I, I know these things. When he comes and he, and he, and he says to uh, a, a wife, you need to be submissive to your husband. That means you're inferior to him. She can say, no, 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 I can't mean I'm inferior because I belong to God. 
And this is his call upon my life. And I'm living out the life of Jesus in my marriage. And for a husband, he comes and he says, hey, because you're the head, it means you, you control everything. And you can just, you can, you, you're better than your wife. And the husband says, no, 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 I'm not. I'm simply living out the life of Jesus. And I'm loving my wife as Christ has loved the church. And I'm actually giving myself for her. Serving her. So when the lies come, we have the belts of truth, you see. Thus, Jesus said that we're sanctified by the truth. And he says to his father, your word is truth. And of course, the passage that we have that we refer to often in 2 Timothy in chapter 3. We know this, that all scripture is God-breathed. It's breathed out by God, profitable for teaching and for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness that we may be equipped, uh, complete, uh, for, every, for every good work, the belt of truth, you see. The belt of truth. And then, of course, the gospel is the truth. Uh, we, 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 we saw that in Ephesians in chapter 1 and verse 13. Um, the apostle writes, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel... Of your salvation. You see, the gospel is the truth. And what's the gospel? The gospel is this atoning work of Jesus. The gospel is that that speaks this wonderful good news that God reigns over sin and death. And how does he do that? He does it because Christ has come and he's given himself for us. That all those who believe in him might be forgiven their sins because of his death. And might live, really live, because he's been resurrected. And he really really lives. In fact, this truth is so important that it, it's necessary for us as the church to have it right with us all the time. We read in Ephesians chapter 4, it says that, uh, verse 11, and he gave apostles and prophets and evangelists, shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until he attained to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed about tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning by craftiness and deceitful schemes rather speaking the truth in love we're to grow up in every way unto him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You see, we need this truth. And we have to put it on. And how do we put it on? One of the ways we put it on is by being together and by speaking it in love, you see. In love to each other. It's necessary to speak it uh, in love, you see. It enables us to grow together. Because you see, this truth isn't just about God and facts about us that we kind of number off. But this truth actually transforms us. This truth actually changes us. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, right? That our lives are we're not to be conformed to the world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds with this truth. It changes us. Paul writes to, to Titus, and he, he says, let me read it so I don't, 
get it wrong. Titus chapter 1, verse 1, he says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. See, this truth always brings godliness. And so when we're speaking the truth to one another, when we're living the truth in context of each other's lives, it isn't just facts, but it's also the very character of our lives. That's why he says, speak it in love. Because you see, this truth without love means I'm not getting the truth. Because if I got the truth, then of course I'll be loving because this truth works in us. Love. John Stott puts it like this. He says, how does the church grow into maturity? Well, it grows by truth and love. Speaking the truth in love is not the best rendering of this expression, he says, for the Greek verb makes no reference to our speech. Literally, it means truthing in love. The, nota- the notions of maintaining and living and doing the truth. Thank God there are those in the contemporary church who are determined at all costs to defend and uphold God's revealed truth. But sometimes they're conspicuously lacking in love. When they think they smell heresy, their noses begin to twitch, their muscles ripple, and the light of battle enters their eyes. They seem to enjoy nothing more than a fight. Others make the opposite mistake. They are, they are determined at all costs to maintain and exhibit brotherly love, but in order to do so are prepared to even sacrifice the central truce of revelation. Both of these tendencies are unbalanced and unbiblical. The truth comes hard if it's not softened by love. Love comes soft if it's not strengthened by truth. The apostle calls us to hold the two together. It should not be difficult for spirit-filled believers since the Holy Spirit is himself the spirit of truth and his first fruit is love. You see, of course, put on the belt of truth. It will keep you. It's sum it up with this passage. Again, many of us are familiar with Joshua in chapter 1, verse 8. In giving the command to Joshua on how he's to lead the people, we have this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you'll have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Don't be frightened. Don't be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. See, this word will keep you. It will keep you, enable you to stand in the breastplate of righteousness. See, we need righteousness, don't we, in order to stand in the presence of God. This soldier needed, needed this, this breastplate that went on his front and his back, from his neck to his thighs, in order, uh, no matter how fit he was, to, to make sure he didn't get killed by something stronger than himself, like a sword, like a, like a spear, like an arrow, guarded his heart. And so righteousness guards our hearts. Uh, our hearts, the very center, the very core of our being, what makes us tick. It was our hearts that became so evil that in Genesis chapter 6, we read that the thoughts and inclinations of the hearts of human beings were evil continuously. And so when the Spirit of God comes, what does he have to do? Well, Ezekiel says he has to take out our heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh to change our hearts. And so the heart is prime real estate for the evil one. 
And so, so he comes to us and he says, he says, well, uh, what makes you think you can stand in the presence of God? You're not righteous. And we say, oh, 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 yes. Inherently, no, but I stand in the righteousness of Christ. His righteousness covering me. His righteous, his righteousness clothing me. That's how I stand. Not in my own righteousness, you see. Theologians call that imputed righteousness. It's the righteousness that's given to us and, and it keeps us. Because the evil one will often come with a lie that says, you, you, you're really too good. You don't really need this salvation that comes from God. You, you can do it. Or he comes and he says, you're so unrighteous. That how could you ever expect for your sins to be forgiven? You've outsinned the mercy of God. And the truth of the matter is, no, 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 no. I need it. And it's impossible to outsend the mercy of God. And I receive his righteousness. That's why I can stand against these lies of the evil one. But not only that, this righteousness is at work within me to, to, to enable me to see sin and, and to hate it and to repent of it and to, and to walk with him. And thus I stand the righteousness Christ imputed to me and worked in me. And then finally he says that we put on these shoes which are um, our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace, you see. You see, the shoes of this soldier be a kind of a boot and a a studded boot that would enable him to go on long journeys, but particularly to be able to stand in the midst of hand-to-hand combat, which is how they fought in ancient days face-to-face. And so right there on the battlefield, so he can stand and not slip and not fall. And so these shoes were, were, were preparation for him to be able to, to enter this battle. But, but notice how the apostle puts it. He says, having, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, This gospel of peace, you see, I can stand before the evil one because I know. Because of the gospel that I have peace with God. How do I know that? I know that because that was the work of Christ. Not my work, but Christ's work. And he came and lived a perfect life that I may have his righteousness. He came and died for me so that his death would cover my sin, the penalty of my sin, the guilt of my sin, and now I'm reconciled to God through the blood of the cross. I have peace. I have peace with God. And so when the evil one comes and says, you know what? The reason all these things are happening to you, these bad things are happening to you, the suffering, what you don't like, the reason these are happening to you is because God's not aware of you. And I go, yes, he is. I'm reconciled to him. I have peace with him. These things haven't come into my life for judgment. They've come into my life to ultimately bless me. Because they've come into my life through the hand of this one who has no case against me. With whom I have peace. I can trust him. And when the evil one comes and says, you know, you've been praying lately, but nothing really is happening of your prayers. Well, that's because God isn't hearing them. That's because God doesn't even know you exist or he knows you exist and, and he's just got you under his thumb and, and, and he's judging you. And you go, no, 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 no. I have peace with God. 
I know that he hears me. He's my father. If I haven't received what I've asked, it's only because God is being patient to grant what is best for me. And a day will come in this life or the next where I'll see it. I have peace with him. So when the evil one comes and says, oh, we, we, we know. We can stand because we know that God is for us. Therefore, who can be against us? And, and not only that, but we know that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. And so we know that when we shot our feet with this gospel, just like in the passage in Isaiah chapter 52, where how wonderful are the feet of those who bring good news, we know that we can stand ready to declare this gospel. In fact, there's a wonderful passage. You're going to have to run to the communion table because we're running late this morning. Uh, and I had to cut two-thirds of this. Uh, wonderful passage in Revelation and uh, chapter 12, where it speaks of the enemy coming against us. And how do we overcome him? Well, he says, they conquered him, that is Satan, by the blood of the lamb, that is knowing that Christ has died for us, and the word of their testimonies, by proclaiming this gospel. Now, to whom do we proclaim it? To ourselves. We preach the gospel to ourselves every day. All the time. And also to others. We proclaim it. For they loved not their lives even unto death. On the night that our Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread after giving thanks. He broke it and this he gave to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given for you. And in the same way he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, this too he gave to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And the apostle adds, as often as we eat of this bread, drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. What are we declaring? We're declaring that Jesus is the truth. Everything he is, everything he said, Everything he did is perfectly reliable. We can trust him. We're declaring that he is our righteousness. That we stand righteous before God. Not because we're righteous, but because he is. And his righteousness covers us. Thus, the Lord declares us to be justified, righteous in his sight forgiven our sins and we're declaring that we have peace with God he does not have a case against us that case has been dealt with we've been pardoned it's been cast out here we are we have peace with him and nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus because you see that's the gospel Let's pray. Father, I pray for us that you would grant grace to us, that you would take this bread and this juice and set it apart in such a way that we know that we're in the very presence of our Lord Jesus. 
And though this bread and juice doesn't change into anything, we do know that Jesus is here spiritually with us to receive us as we come to this table. Oh, he receives us in other places, in other ways. And as we study his word and read his word, he receives us as we pray. He receives us as we meditate upon him. He receives us as we walk with him. We know we are in his presence. But in this instance, he gave us this table that we might come. And as we come, I pray that you would enable us to put on the belt of truth to put on the breastplate of righteousness, to shod our feet with the gospel of peace, that we may stand against whatever lies the evil one brings to us, 